Good afternoon. It is truly a blessing to be here. I uh, love and appreciate you all as my brethren so much. And it's always encouraging to be able to come together as a spiritual family and worship our Father together. As Christians, we are called to live introspective lives. The Bible talks about us in Matthew 7, taking the plank out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brother's eye. It talks about in James 1, us looking into God's word as into a mirror, um, which I hope is, is what each of us strive to do each time that we come together. It's to look in our own hearts and our own lives. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. And so every day, we are to make a practice of, of searching our own hearts and searching our own lives. But if we do that, many times we're not going to like what we find. Many times we're going to see things in our own life that are not what they need to be. We're going to see mistakes that we've made, failures, weaknesses, things that we haven't handled the right way. We're going to see sins in our lives. And as we look at ourselves, as we look at our past, we may have to deal with a lot of regrets. And that's what I want us to talk about today, is living with regret. I preached this sermon for the first time just about a year ago. And when I was writing the sermon, I was writing it to myself. Um, about a year ago, around this time, I, it had come to my attention that I had handled some conversations in a way that I regretted. That I had not um, thought uh, about what I was saying, uh, that I had come across the wrong way to some people, that I was quick to speak and, and slow to hear, uh, and that that caused some damage that I wasn't even uh, aware of. And so as I came to deal with that in my own mind, I, I searched through the scriptures and d developed this lesson. And I hope uh, that maybe it will be helpful to you all today as it was helpful to me. I don't know about you, but many times in my own life I find that as I'm doing some mindless task, as I'm, uh, you know, washing the dishes or, you know, exercising, I... I allow my mind to wander to the past and sometimes I find myself letting out an audible groan or sigh when I think about something that I said, something that I did that I wish I could go back and change. Um, how do we handle regrets? How do we handle things that, that we know we didn't do in the correct way? Maybe people that we've hurt, um, sins that we've committed. How do we handle the guilt in our hearts? How do we handle the damage that it's caused to others or maybe even to our own reputation? Um, do these regrets have to weigh us down for the rest of our lives? The Bible has a lot to say about regret and how we handle it. And I hope by studying it together, we can all grow to view our past in the most godly and spiritually constructive way. The first thing that I want us to consider is that no regrets means no growth. Many times we, we think about a life with no regrets as being you know, the, the greatest thing possible. We want to get to the end of our life and we want to look back on our life and say that we don't regret a thing, that we wouldn't have changed a single thing. Well, brethren, if that is the case, it's not a testament to our moral perfection. 
If that is the case, it may be a testament to our moral blindness. We have been blind to our own faults. All of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have had to grow spiritually. We've had times of immaturity and weakness, things that we have not handled the right way. And those of us who are truly introspective are going to have regrets. Without having regret uh, means we're not going to grow. And so the Bible encourages us to have this awareness in our lives of those things that we have done wrong. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. If I look back at my life and I have no regrets, my, my way is right in my, own wise, uh, in my own eyes, the Bible calls me a fool. Uh, those who are open to seeing the faults in their words and in their actions, those who are willing to, to see areas that they have done wrong and need to change, um, are those that the Bible would call wise, those who heed counsel, who heed rebuke. Wise are those who are never fully content with where they are spiritually, but are always seeking to grow and improve in their service to the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 6, we see God rebuking the children of Israel for a lack of regret. He says, were they ashamed because of the abominations they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. A lack of shame, a lack of the ability to blush is not a sign of spiritual strength. It is a sign of spiritual weakness. And so while regret is not something that, that we like to deal with, it's not something that we like to dwell on or think about, the Bible would call us to embrace regret, to recognize the things that we have done wrong, and to allow that to change us. Now we'll talk about how we should handle that regret as we move on, but the point that I want us to see here is that we need to be able to feel shame and to feel regret. We need to be able to blush at our sins. If we are going to grow spiritually, we need to be able to feel remorse and shame. If we feel regret and wish that we could go back and change something, it is evidence, at least in some way, that we have grown. That if we could go back and change that, we would do things differently. So we should not push aside regret in our hearts and in our thoughts but we should allow it to have its proper work within our hearts. Luke chapter 18, if you'd like to turn there. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9 through 14, Jesus tells a parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Here are those who have no regrets in their own life, but they can see plenty of regrets in other people's lives. And Jesus tells this parable of a man who has no regrets and a man who has deep regret. The Pharisee here stands and prays thus to himself, thanking God that he is not like other men. Verse 11 says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Here uh, he is coming to prayer uh, coming to God in prayer to tell God how good he is. 
this is not our example. The example that Jesus would have us follow is in verse 13. The tax collector who's standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It is this man who went home justified. Here, if we want to be justified, we can't be justified without regret. We need to make sure that we're not like the Pharisee here who easily sees the wrong in other people's lives but is blind to his own regrets and his own faults. Many times in trying to justify our sins, we, we minimize them by, by picking out somebody else who has done something worse. We say, well, at least I'm better than so-and-so. At least I'm better than so-and-so. What the Bible would have us to do is join Paul in saying, I am the chief of sinners. And being willing to beat our breasts before God and allowing that remorse to have its proper work within our hearts. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, as we talked about drawing near to God in our Bible class, we reference this passage. And if we want to draw near to God, what James says is required here. In verse 8, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you're double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Brother, if we want to receive God's grace, if we want to draw near to him, if we want to be lifted up from the depth of our sins, it requires genuine regret, genuine mourning over our sins. Um, and we look at that and we read that passage and that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> that is not something that is desirable. That is not something that we want. I don't want to view myself in that way, but for each and every one of us, we need to have the, the depth and sincerity of regret in our hearts that will lead us to bring our sins before the Lord, broken, looking for His cleansing. A depth of insincerity of regret is not a testimony simply of the depth of my sin. It is also a testimony of the depth of my repentance. And so we need to recognize that with no regret, there is no growth. Regret is something that each and every one of us should feel, that we need to feel. But secondly, we see that regret must be used properly. The value of regret is ultimately in its source and in its direction. Uh, why do I feel regret and what am I going to do about that regret? And the Bible would urge us to allow regret to drive us forward and not drag us backward. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the passage that we read together just a moment ago, uses the, the word regret, at least in the New American Standard, multiple times here. But we see, uh, if we start in verse 9, he says, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Here, the rejoicing here is, is not in the sorrow. 
is not in the regret itself. The rejoicing is in what that has the capability of producing, what that has the potential of producing within our lives. Within itself, regret is neither good nor bad. It's where that regret comes from and how it is used that can bring a rejoicing, can bring a salvation that he then says is without regret. Read verse 10. He says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And if we properly use regret in the present, um, then it can lead us to a life free of the burden of regret in the future. It can lead us to a salvation in which the, the guilt is taken away. And so we need to make sure that we use it, uh, that, that we have a focus in that regret that is on God. A godly sorrow and what we have done uh, against Him, how our sins have, have created a rift in our relationship with Him. And allow that to lead us to what is described in verse 11. It says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, is produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. And everything you've demonstrated yourself to be innocent in this matter. Here, if we are to push aside regret, if we don't want to think about those things, if we don't want to feel that shame, we are robbing ourselves of the very powerful force towards our inward transformation. Here he says that this is able to produce a passion, to produce a zeal, a vindication of things wrong uh, that will demonstrate itself, it says there at the end of verse 11. It will demonstrate itself in genuine repentance and genuine change and commitment to overcoming those sins toward restoring the relationship that God in His grace continues to offer us. And yet, verse 10 says that if we don't handle regret in the proper way, if it's the sorrow of the world, a regret that is focused on me and how my sins have affected me, then it is going to produce death. It is going to weigh us down and eventually destroy us. So it's very vital that we use regret in the proper way. Not that we ignore it, not that we push it aside, but that we use it to pull us forward closer to God. When we think about these two options of regret bringing us closer to God or regret ending in destruction, two people come to mind. If you turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 27, we read the story of Peter and the story of Judas. And Judas and Peter are very similar in the sins that they commit here. Uh, Judas, we see, betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And Peter, we see, denies Jesus three times. But they have two very different results because they felt regret in two very different ways. They used regret in two very different ways. If we look at Judas, we see that Judas um, was engaged in trying to, to get more money out of this um, situation that he found himself in as one of Jesus' disciples here, taking from the, the treasury, even we're told in other places. And here he saw an opportunity to get 30 pieces of silver by turning over Jesus uh, to those who wished 
to condemn him. And yet, it seems that Judas didn't think that Jesus would actually be condemned. Seems Judas must have thought that, well, you know, Jesus has escaped before, surely, you know, he'll get off, this won't end that bad, because when things do turn for the worse, and when Jesus is condemned, and when he is murdered, Judas has a much different reaction. He comes to realize the damage that his sin has done, and as long as the consequences were minimal, he felt no regret or remorse. But when the casualties rose and his master was condemned to death, Judas could not handle the weight of such guilt upon his conscience. And so Judas, in reaction to that, decides that he needs to escape the guilt. He could not live with that kind of guilt. And so in verse 3 through 5, if you'll read with me here, of Matthew 27, it says, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is this to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. Here Judas felt remorse, we're told. He felt regret because of what his sins had caused. And yet, clearly, this didn't produce what we read about in 2 Corinthians 7, did it? Here, Judas's primary focus was getting rid of this guilt. I don't want to feel this guilt. I don't want to live with these consequences. And the easiest way to escape the guilt was just to end it all. When regret, when remorse within itself is our focus, it's going to destroy us. But we have a different story with Peter. We see that when, when guilt is the strongest force in our life, it will destroy us. But when it is a byproduct of a deeper desire to be pleasing to God, it will transform us. In Matthew 26, we see Peter, after he had sworn to Jesus that he would not deny him, no matter what it took, even if it demanded his death, he would never deny Jesus. And we see in Matthew 26 him doing exactly what he said he wouldn't, three times, in fact. On the last such occasion, we see in verse 74 of chapter 26, then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. In Luke's account of this, we read that he turned and he saw Jesus. Imagine the remorse, or imagine the guilt, the, the falling out of the pit of his stomach as he looked at Jesus, saw the very one that he had sworn that he would not deny. And he had just denied him three times, vehemently denied him. And so, in verse 25, it says, And Peter remembered the words which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter had some very real, some very deep remorse. And yet, his guilt was not just about the consequences. Not just about having to, to live with this on his conscience. His guilt was a byproduct of his love for Jesus. The stronger force here was not guilt itself. The stronger force was the love that drove him. 
And that love drove him not to end it all. That love drove him to be restored to the Lord after his resurrection, to go out and to passionately preach for Jesus, even facing death and never again denying the Lord. Brethren, when guilt is our focus, it is going to destroy us. But when it is the byproduct of a commitment to wanting to be pleasing to God, when it is the byproduct of a genuine love for God, it is going to transform us. It is going to produce that zeal. It is going to produce that passion that 2 Corinthians 7 talks about. If it's a self-centered regret, it will destroy us. If it is a God-centered regret, it will transform us. One other individual that we can consider here is the Apostle Paul. Think about some of the regrets the Apostle Paul had to deal with. Uh, In his previous life as Saul of Tarsus, he had been very active, very zealous in persecuting Christians and taking part and dragging them into prison and having them put to death. I want you to imagine for a moment what Paul had to live with. You think him coming to the church in Jerusalem, the church that we read in Acts initially didn't want to accept him. You, You think that there might have been some Christians there who had relatives who had been thrown into prison by Paul? You think there might have been some Christians there who had relatives who were put to death because of the work that Paul was involved in? You think Paul might have had to look into the eyes of people whose family members were gone because of him? Paul had taken part in murder. How did Paul handle that within his life? Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul had just as much reason for regret as Judas, as Peter. But he didn't allow that to drag him down. He allowed that to push him forward. He allowed that to motivate him. As he previously tried to tear down the church, now he is going to work just as zealously and just as passionately to restore that which he tried to tear down. Many times I think of the illustration of a rocket thruster putting a space shuttle into space. And you think about as that space shuttle lifts off the ground, you have you know, hundreds of, of gallons of fuel that are pushing it and thrusting it into space. But once it gets out into space, what does it have to do? It has to detach that uh, thruster that pushed it into orbit um, so it will no longer drag it down. Brethren, I think that's a picture of how we need to handle regret. We need to make sure that we have spent every last ounce of fuel in those thrusters. We need to make sure that that regret has fully motivated the type of zeal and the type of passion to change. And yet when it does, we cannot allow regret and guilt to continue to weigh us down. When it's the byproduct of a genuine love for God, it's going to drive us forward. We must detach and leave it behind. We must forget that which lies behind and reach forward to that which lies ahead. And what allows us ultimately to to put those past sins behind us 
is God's mercy and God's grace. God's mercy allows us to leave our guilt behind. Continuing to consider Paul, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Here Paul describes his former life. He, he was still painfully aware of the things that he had done. He says in verse 13, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. While Paul, in one sense, was forgetting those things which lied behind, he wasn't allowing them to drag him down, he hadn't forgotten. He was painfully aware of the sins that he had committed. In fact, in verse 15, he doesn't say, I was the foremost of all. He doesn't say, I was the chief of sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners. He recognized his unworthiness. And yet, for Paul, he was able to allow the mercy and the grace of God to eclipse his sin and his past life. He was able to, to mention those things and yet immediately point towards God's grace and towards God's mercy. He considered himself exhibit A of God's grace. You, you want to know God's grace? Look at me. Look at the foremost of all sinners. Look what God has accomplished in me. And so Paul wasn't ashamed uh, in one sense. He, he was not going to cover up his sin in his past life because he recognized that they were an opportunity, a testimony to the grace and the power of God within his life. Paul's statement to the world was, if God can forgive and transform me, he can do it for you as well. Because God did not view his sin simply as a liability, but as an opportunity, as an opportunity to proclaim his grace. Think about David as well. Uh, David had this same attitude about his sin. That, that David went on to write psalms for generations to read about his sin so that they might see God's grace. And so, brethren, when, when our guilt and when our shame raises its ugly head, we, we don't deny that it's there. But we immediately allow God's grace and God's mercy to vanquish it. And we allow it to be a testimony to his power within our lives. That ultimately is our message to the world. If God can forgive Paul, if God can forgive the very ones who nailed Jesus' feet and hands into the cross, if God can forgive me, he can forgive you. We need to be willing to have that type of, of platform. Not, uh, you know, come be as righteous as I am. <laughs> that, that's not our biblical pattern. No, our pattern is if God can forgive me, he can forgive you. And sometimes we are weighed down by regret because we don't have a proper appreciation for God's grace. 
We know intellectually that God's grace saves us, that we don't earn our salvation, but in a practical sense, we, we feel that we have to achieve some level of righteousness before God's grace kicks in. That, you know, we, we need to pass some performance evaluation before God will grant us His grace. That we have to, to make up for our wrongs before we can be cleansed. Now, certainly, the genuine heart of godly sorrow is going to repent, is going to do everything to make up for our wrongs. That's not what we're saying. But we recognize that God's grace is able to cleanse the repentant heart. The heart that is willing to come and lay our sins at his feet. God is there to cleanse us in his mercy and in his grace. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. We read, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brethren, where does your assurance of salvation come from? Where does your assurance that you're going to heaven come from? The Bible talks about us being able to have an assurance of heaven in our lives. It's not just, well, I... I hope I get there. Now, where does that assurance come from? Notice here the two adjectives that it uses to describe uh, Jesus' power and forgiveness are faithfulness and righteousness. He is faithful and he is righteous to forgive. My assurance of salvation does not come ultimately from my faithfulness and my righteousness. My assurance comes from his faithfulness and his righteousness. That he is faithful to his promises to cleanse me of my sin. That he is righteous, that he has provided his righteousness in Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross on my behalf. Now, John will make it clear that we must confess our sins. That we must walk in the light as he is in the light. That we cannot continue in darkness and expect God's grace to cleanse us. But brethren, where our assurance comes from is not us. It is from Him. We need to have a greater awareness, a greater depth of understanding of God's grace in our lives. God's grace is not incumbent upon some yearly performance evaluation. If I am genuinely reaching for Him, if I am genuinely striving to walk in the light, and it doesn't matter how far I am away from it. It doesn't matter how immature, how weak at this point. If I am genuinely reaching for him, I can know that his grace is reaching me. It's not about achieving some level of righteousness. It's about having a repentant heart and knowing that God and his faithfulness and righteousness will forgive. And God gives us assurance of his grace throughout the scriptures. Let's look at just a few passages together. Uh, we, I'll, I'll go ahead and mention, before we get to this one, Jeremiah 31, verse 34. We've mentioned this in our Hebrews classes. It's quoted in Hebrews 8, where God says, I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Brethren, if the omniscient, the all-knowing mind of God has forgotten your sins, you can be sure that they're gone. He says he will remember our sins no more. He will not keep some record of it and if we stumble again, he's going to bring out this list of everything that we've done. 
No, he says, I will remember it no more. Jeremiah 50 and verse 20 says, In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. Because of God's willingness to pardon, because of his forgiveness, he promises us that, that you can search heaven and earth. You can make a diligent inspection trying to find the sin, but you're not going to find it because it's not there. His grace has cleansed it. His grace has washed it away. It is forever erased. Psalm 103 and verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He has removed it beyond the limits of natural measurement. To infinity and beyond, he, he has sent our sins packing and told them never to return. We can be assured that God in his grace has forgiven us of those sins. Micah chapter 7 and verse 19 we read, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. God is going to vanquish our sins. He's going to trample it down. And he is going to bury it so far in the sea that no creature can ever find it. That is our picture of forgiveness throughout the Bible. And so, brethren... If we are willing to have the type of remorse and the type of regret that God has desired from us, if we're willing to have that broken and contrite spirit, we can be assured that, that God's grace isn't going to wait to kick in until we've uh, achieved some certain level of righteousness in our lives. No, God wants the broken and the contrite heart, and His grace will make us righteous. His faithfulness, His righteousness is able to make us clean, able to make us perfect, able to make us worthy to be in the presence of God. We need to make sure that we view our past sins the way that God views our past sins. And if this is how God is willing to view our past sins, who are we to hold on to them? We cannot allow them to continue to weigh us down. We must use them. We must use that regret and that genuine remorse to transform us, to produce a zeal and a passion for serving God within us. But then we must be willing to put it where God has put it. Remember that God's grace has vanquished our sins. We don't have to cower before them anymore. But one last point, and I think it's an important point is that just because the guilt of those sins has been vanquished does not mean that all consequences will be removed. I need to recognize that God's grace doesn't remove all consequences of my sins. That God's grace empowers me to work through those consequences. Consider David for a moment. Let's turn to 2 Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 12, and we have talked about this recently. We're familiar with the story of David and his sin, how what began as something small grew, uh, and how that sin over, overtook his life, how it began with lust, coveting another man's wife, but it led to adultery and to deception and ultimately to murder. 
and how Nathan the prophet comes to him in chapter 12 and he tells him a story. And, and Nathan, as is so often the case for us, or David, as so often the case for us, is able to see something in somebody else that he can't see in his own life. And yet Nathan tells him, you are the man. Nathan turns that mirror back to David, allowing him to see his own sin. And we see David's response in verse 13. David doesn't say, how dare you accuse me? How, how, how dare you bring this to my attention? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. It says, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. The consequence of this sin under the old law was that he should be put to death. And yet God, in his grace, had given him redemption and taken away the consequence of that sin. And yet, notice what verse 14 says. It says, However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. I want you to consider this for a moment. I want you to imagine for a moment that because of some sin in your life, one of your children was going to die. And you know that because of what you have done, your child is dying. Imagine the remorse. Imagine the guilt that would bring. And yet, notice David's response. We see David mourns and he weeps before the Lord. He fasts and he prays, begging that God would remove this consequence, that his son would not die. But in verse 20, it says, So David arose from the ground after hearing that his child was dead. He washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child is alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While this child was still alive, I fasted and I wept, for I said, Who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I feel like this should be one of those jaw-drop moments as we read the scripture. And here, David, having his child die because of his own sins, he turns around and he worships the Lord. And he recognizes that God was just to allow this consequence. He doesn't re rebel against God and say, well, God, why, why, did you, uh, why did you punish me in this way? I thought you took my sin away. No, he recognized there was a legitimate consequence to his sin, and he was willing to accept that. He was willing to put it in the Lord's hands and praise the Lord. Because David ultimately was not focused on simply what damage his sin caused to him. David was more concerned about God's will and God's glory than his personal sorrow. And if to mend the wounds that David had caused, to mend the, the reputation that this had brought upon God and his people, his child needed to die, then may God's will be done, and may he be glorified. 
David, like Peter, was not simply focused on his own regrets and his own pain and his own hurt. He was focused on God. In Psalm 51 and in verse 4, remember, remember David in his psalm of repentance says, Against you, you only, I have sinned. Did, did David only sin against God? I think he might have hurt a few other people. I think in his lying and his adultery and ultimately in his murder, I would say Uriah at least was very hurt by his sin. How can David say, you alone I have hurt? Because in David's mind, his focus was on God. His focus is on what he had done against the Lord. His focus was on his will and his glory above all else. When our focus is on God, we can trust that he will mend the wounds of our sins has caused according to his sovereign purpose. Now, he may not mend my personal pain. He may not mend my earthly consequences, my broken relationships, the damage to my reputation or to my influence. But he will mend my relationship with him and any damage that I have done to his cause. And he will provide a path forward for me in his service. And he will uphold his glory in my life. Brethren, if my focus is on him, if that's what I truly care about, then that should be enough. It doesn't matter if God mends every wound, every pain, every relationship matters that he mends my relationship with him so that I can have a hope of eternity in his presence. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say God causes all things to be good. It says God causes all things to work together for good. Brethren, that includes my regrets. That includes my mistakes and my sins. God used Paul's sins for his glory. God uses even our immaturity, our weakness, and our sin for his glory if we are willing to turn our lives over to him. I may have ruined evangelistic opportunities. I may have offended brethren. I may have alienated family members or friends. I may have made horrible decisions that I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. But it is never too late to let God take control and transform it all into something for his glory. It may not be the life that I've always wanted. It may not be enjoyable or easy. It may not be what I would desire. But it can be God-glorifying, and that should be enough. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9 and 10, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain. But I labored even, even more abundantly than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. You know, if, if Paul could have gone back and chose what type of life he lived, I think he would have chose something different. I think Paul would have loved to be a Peter or to be a John, not to be the one who had murdered Christians. And yet God had use for a Paul. 
may not have been the life that he would have wished for himself. But God was able to use him for his glory. And may we all be able to say what Paul says here, that God's grace was not in vain in his life. That God was able to transform him and his sins, his murder, into something for his glory. We need to let God turn our mistakes into monuments for his grace. Turn our regrets into relics of his glory. We need to have the attitude and the focus of Paul. It didn't matter to Paul what his life was like, whether or not it was enjoyable to him, whether or not it was what he wanted. Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My regrets have been nailed to the cross, and God is able to transform them into forces for good. How do we handle our regrets? Brethren, if, if you don't have regrets, then you need to start searching your heart. You need to look into the mirror of God's Word. And you need to see your sin and your life the way that God sees it. But brethren, how are we using those regrets is really the most important question. Are we going to use them to draw us closer to God? Are we going to use them to motivate us to make us more passionate and being who God wants us to be and allowing him to transform us into people like Paul who was able to use his own life as a testimony to God's grace? Or are we going to allow them to tear us down, to weigh us down, to bring us to destruction? My prayer is that each and every one of us can use that type of regret and that remorse to bring us closer to God, to bring more glory to Him within our lives. If you recognize that in some way today you need to make your life right with the Lord, that you need to bring your regrets, your shame, your sin before Him, don't wait until we leave this building to do that. Do that now. And if it is of a public nature and you need to make that known to the brethren, we want you to know that we are here to support you and to encourage you, that we love you and we want to help you in your relationship with the Lord.